Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day to you. It seems fitting that this morning we should be continuing our study of Abraham, the great father and patriarch of Israel, as we show appreciation to our fathers and for the good things they have done. Um, so let's jump in, or sorry, I should say, before we jump in, though, to today's text, uh, let's spend just a minute recalling where we are in Genesis. So at this point in the text, um, just as a reminder, Lot and Abram, as John told us last week, they just separated because Abram and Lot's herdsmen were not getting along. So their people were, far, were forced to part ways. Abram gave Lot the choice of which of the lands he preferred. And uh, after surveying the two options, Lot chose the fertile garden-like land just to the east of what we call today the Dead Sea. So he moved his herd in that direction. Um, however, Lot fails to consider how moving himself next to the city of Sodom, a city filled with what the Bible calls wicked men, great sinners against the Lord, would affect them. He only has eyes on the apparent beauty and fertile nature of the land and either didn't see or didn't want to see that he was putting himself and his people in a precarious position. I thought that was good alliteration for, for preaching. I like the, the alliteration. So you'll notice that in my sermon title too. A little alliteration for you for fun. So Lot moves himself to the east side next to Sodom and he's not really thinking about how that may affect his family. Abram, meanwhile, takes the west side of the Dead Sea. So just so you kind of have an idea, there's a lot of geography in today's lesson, uh, lesson sermon. Um, and so the Dead Sea, so you know, it's kind of this long, skinny sea. It's in modern-day Israel. And so you can kind of think about that as, as I refer to different things. The, uh, and I have to do this backwards because I'm doing it in front of you. But um, Lot moved to the east side, and Abram is over on the west side of the Dead Sea. I hope I did that right. Um, so they're a little bit separate from each other. He takes the west side of the Dead Sea. Um, this area is not as rich or as fertile. Um, yet, what we see is that Abraham showed faith in God's promise to make him a mighty nation, trusting that whatever land he lived in, God would make good on his promise to bless him. So though he would likely have had every right to assert his seniority or authority as Lot's uncle and elder to choose first, he instead lets Lot decide and is satisfied with whatever the outcome. Finally, at the end of chapter 13, God reiterates his promise to Abram, telling him that, that he will still make his descendants, in, in his words, like the dust of the earth. Um, so that if anyone can count the dust of the earth, um, I've tried to take on that task so far, have not been able to count it. Um, that's how many his descendants will be. So we pick our story back up. Likely a few years later, Lot and Abraham have moved to their respective areas on either side of the Dead Sea and separated um, and settled. So this morning, we're going to study chapter 14 of the book of Genesis, and we're going to do so in three parts. And like I said, I'm not super creative, but I did at least find some alliteration, so I was, I was really pleased with myself about that. Um, first section is going to be rebellion, second is rescue, and the third, reward. So that's our outline for this morning. Section one, rebellion, section two, rescue, and section three, reward. Now as we dive in, fair warning, there are going to be a lot of names and places in this first passage. 
but I don't want you to get too hung up on these. I know I won't, because I'll probably mispronounce a lot of them, but do your best to follow along. Um, and then once we've read the first section, I'm gonna try and put everything together uh, that we just read so it makes a little more sense uh, all at once with maybe a few less names involved, because um, it can be kind of confusing at first. So um, let's jump in. Let's start with Genesis chapter 14. Turn there if you would with me. Uh, we're going to read verses one through 12. Verses 1 through 12, chapter 14 of the book of Genesis. And it says, In the days of Emraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, and Shadorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, the king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And all these joined forces at the Valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Shador Laomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Shador Laomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim at Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shaveth Kiriatham, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Enmishphat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and they joined the battle in the valley of Sidim. With Shadar Laomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. As the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. So, part one, rebellion. Our story begins with a number of different kings who lived in and around where Abram and Lot had settled. These kings had made themselves subject to King Shador Laomer who is king of a place called Elam, which is northeast of the Dead Sea. So again, we've got the Dead Sea, and he's going to be up here on the northeast side. What we are told is that there was peace in the land for about 12 years as the kings in the region were subject to and paid tribute to Shadar Laomer. This arrangement seemed to be working fine until five of the kings got tired and rebelled, likely by ceasing to pay their regular tribute, which no doubt angered King Shadar Laomer. So these five rebellious kings uh, included the kings of two cities we're likely very familiar with, at least in name, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, as well as the kings of some lesser known areas, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela, also known as Zor, which were believed to have been clustered down near where Lot was living, again, Dead Sea, down here where Lot was living on the east and southeast side of the Dead Sea. So King Shador Laomer, not happy, uh, as I mentioned, and in the 14th year, when it was clear that these kings were not going to be paying tribute and living up to their end of their agreement together, he called upon three other kings, still loyal to him, the kings of Shinar, Elisar, and Goim, to fight the kings who were rebelling and destroy their peoples. So 
these four kings marched their way down what is referred to as the King's Highway and uh, coming from the north, moving their way south, wiping out every town as they go through. Now, it's worth just noting here that the towns that they're wiping out on the way through are actually not the ones in rebellion, but simply uh, ones that were on their way to the rebellious towns. So again, they're coming from the north, they're making their way through these towns, you're trying to get really to the southern part of the Dead Sea where the battle will occur, and as they go, they're taking out all the different towns and peoples. There's a little bit of uh, foreshadowing here, um, so keep that in mind. Um, when I say that, what I'm talking about is the, this idea that basically they're either doing so to, to really show that we're powerful and we can take out anyone that we come up against, um, or perhaps more pointedly, they're trying to prevent a counterattack so that when they do get to the bottom, the south side of the Dead Sea to fight these five rebellious kings, no one can come up behind them and attack them from their, uh, from, from where they just came. So these four kings, all their armies, continue to march southward until they go through Sodom, near where Lot's living, and Gomorrah, and eventually reach the southern tip of the Dead Sea. The journey is several hundred miles, maybe two, 250 miles, brutal warfare the whole time, and we're meant to conclude that these four kings' armies probably had pretty incredible might. Um, because again, buried in some of the names and details here that we probably don't pick up on immediately um, is that some of these groups that they came up against, the Rephim and some of the others, were actually thought of to be very difficult and, and sometimes very large people, similar to the giants like we hear about in the story of David and Goliath uh, and the Philistines. So what, what we're learning here is that this army is a formidable one and is one that is taking out not just groups of people that they happen to come up against, but very strong and powerful people as they head into this, this final battle. So then the mighty army meets up with the armies of the five rebellious kings. And interestingly, when the battle, the big battle actually happens, we're not really told much about it, um, which you know, in my opinion, means it probably wasn't much of a battle to begin with. Uh, the, the four kings, though they were outnumbered, easily defeated the five kings. Really, the only thing that we're told about, other than that there was a fight, is that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell into bitumen pits. Um, now, of course, we all know what bitumen pits are. <laughs> no. Um, Elijah doesn't know, so we, we do need to clarify that. The logical question, what the heck is a bitumen pit? And the answer is tar pits. Um, if you've ever seen the movie, um, is it uh, Volcano? Is that it? I think that's the one. But uh, there are tar pits. You, there actually are some in existence today. If you go out to L.A., there's some tar pits at a museum out there. Um, in my head, I picture something um, like in Lord of the Rings where we see Frodo and Sam and Gollum crossing over the marshlands trying to get to Mordor. Um, but instead of walking through pits of water with dead people in them, like in Lord of the Rings, they're running amid pits of tar and trying to avoid falling in. Sadly, some of them did fall in and got stuck, and uh, some may have even hidden in some of the larger tar pits, and still others fled to the hill country. And just a point of clarification here for those of you from Texas, this is not Austin or Fredericksburg, um, but rather the hill country in modern day Israel. So it was not quite as far of a flea as it would have been. So Shador Leomer and the three kings that remained loyal to him had won the war. And as the victors, 
we're told they looted the towns of the defeated enemies, taking goods and women and servants. And because Lot was living in the land, they took him and all of his people and possessions as well. So that's the story. Hopefully that makes a little more sense uh, without all of the exact names and things in there that tend to be a little bit confusing. But what are the key points from this chapter? What, what should we take away from this portion of the chapter, rather? Well, here are, here are three things that I'd like us to remember. Number one, the army fighting with Shador Laomer is a mighty one. The army fighting with this king, Shador Laomer, is a mighty one. They appear to have easily routed these rebellious kings, even though, like I said, it was technically four versus five. Um, and this point about them being mighty, it may not seem particularly important right now, but it will come, become clearer as we see what happens later. And while we don't know, we're not told the numerical specifics of either of these two uh, forces, we can take away that, like I said, this is a formidable army for the time and region. We should also, point number two, we should also carefully consider the choices that we make with our lives. So a little bit different of a point here, but um, perhaps a more uh, application-heavy point. We should carefully consider the choices we make with our lives. Now this point, this point is similar to one from John's sermon last week. Um, Abram's nephew, Lot, had looked when he was choosing the land to dwell in at the external. But now, because he didn't consider exactly where he was going and where he would be settling himself and who he would be settling himself near, it was costing him greatly. He thought that by taking the more fertile land, where they were, that he would be guaranteed success and prosperity. And while that may have been true for a few years, his association with, or we might even just say his proximity to, the wicked city of Sodom and those living there ended up being his undoing. So Lot and all his people and family and possessions were carried off as spoils of war. Now we're going to return to what happens to Lot shortly, but let's consider what Lot did. Let's look at that a little bit more directly. Lot made a choice based on an outward and immediate appearance. And as I said earlier, he ignored the fact that he would be settling himself near a wicked, sinful people. So the question I have for us is, do we find ourselves acting in this way? Do we make poor decisions with our eyes without considering how we may be affected spiritually by those decisions? Do we take whatever we perceive to be the easy path? I know I struggle with this. Uh, I am no fan of discomfort, and I can sometimes make hasty decisions based off of what seems comfortable and easy at the time without considering the long-term and perhaps more pointedly, the spiritual consequences. And what about in making decisions for our future? Do we think about the spiritual ramifications of things like where we live, where we work, who we will marry, what we will watch on TV, how we will spend our free time. Uh, I'm not gonna throw video games under the bus because you can listen to last week's sermon for that, but that is one way some people spend free time. <laughs> As we think about the decision though that Lot made with his eyes only, it reminds us that we need to take a long-term spiritual view of the choices that we are faced with and not always just what appears to be good on the surface. 
Lot wasn't thinking very clearly when he chose to settle next to Sodom. I don't know if he liked the idea of living near the big city, but as many of us have found, when we make choices in our lives that take us too close to the people or places who can corrupt us, even though we may have the best of intentions, it can end up being us that are corrupted by them instead of us having a positive impact upon them. Now, let me be clear. Surely we are sinful and morally corrupt from birth. So we can't escape that. And we all need rescue from sin. But we can also make choices by asking God for wisdom and wise godly counselors for help when the decisions we face have the potential to affect the course of our lives. So let's not underestimate the spiritual component of the choices we make. Thirdly, some situations may look bad on the surface. So this is kind of flipping this on its head. Some things may look bad on the surface, but that doesn't mean God's not still using them for good. Some situations may look bad on the surface, but that doesn't mean that God is not still using them for good. So this, this other slant I wanna take before heading back to the text um, is that we've talked about the negative side of things, but the other point I wanna draw out from this story is that not all situations that appear bad at face value are. Just because something looks like it's not a good thing doesn't mean that God's not still there guiding it or helping and caring for us. Lot's situation probably seemed desperate and hopeless because not only had they been taken captive away from their new home, but all of the armies who had any chance of defeating their captors had seemingly been wiped out. Abram, on the other hand, had been given the more desolate land. When he allowed Lot to choose the fertile land, he got you know, the lower end, the short end of the stick, and he could have grumbled and complained and felt like, well, this was a bad choice. Why didn't I choose the, the fertile land for myself? So I had every right to. But again, what appeared to be bad on the surface doesn't mean God's not still using it for good. For my own uh, life, I struggle with wanting control. I, I have to remind myself of this reality often because control is something that I, I really do wrestle with. I'm quick to judge one situation is bad and another is good and that, and that I need to have control over what's good and what's bad based upon my personal instincts. But the reality is we don't always know, and we often don't know, which is which in God's eyes. Things like losing a job, being forced to move, someone passing away in our family. They might appear bad at first, and, and they may be sad and, and difficult events. But that doesn't mean that God is, is not at work. As a matter of fact, God is never not at work, even in the hardest of situations. Uh, as an example of this, last year I was reminded uh, of this reality as, appropriately, my 73-year-old father uh, was facing eviction from his apartment. Now, for the last few years, just a quick backstory, last few years my family and I have really been trying to keep him afloat financially and specifically from getting evicted. But after being late on his rent for uh, three months in the same year, he hit kind of this three strikes and you're out rule with his apartment complex and they began eviction proceedings. Uh, I was definitely stressed out and anxious about it, wondering if my dad was gonna be homeless, what could I do, and I could see no light at the end of the tunnel. 
Um, for, for, for my part, in my head was just consumed thoughts of how could he get another apartment with an eviction on his record? If he did find one, would it be in a safe place? Would it be a place he'd want to live? Could he even afford a different place? Our family prayed a lot during that time, though, um, but we were just at a loss as, as what we could do. And every day we were getting closer and closer to the eviction. I imagined the worst, that my dad would have no place to live, and, and I just couldn't see how any good could come out of this. Uh, eventually, I tried calling a local group in Indianapolis where he lives that helps seniors find a place to live. Um, this was kind of a long shot because my dad has always been vehemently opposed to any sort of nursing home or anything like that, even though some of us in the family felt like that would be a good place for him. Um, but I tried anyway just to see what was available. Um, as I talked with this agency, I saw the first signs that God was at work when my dad's heart started to soften towards the idea of moving to a retirement community. And despite only having a, a few short weeks, we're talking maybe, maybe three weeks until his eviction, this group was able to find a small car, a, apartment complex for retired people. It wasn't a nursing home, um, so that helped. Uh, but not only that, it was immediately available um, and it provided for all his needs. I, I, I started to see that God had been up to something behind the scenes that I couldn't see because all I was looking at was the surface. So God not only, like I said, softened my dad's heart into going to a home for retired folks, but it met his basic needs. They had three meals a day, internet, cable TV, phone service, parking, a storage unit, and more. On top of all that, New Complex was even offering the first month's rent for free, and all future rent is locked in at the same rate. God had used what seemed like a hopeless situation to bring the right option at the right time, along with a change in my dad's heart, so that now he has an affordable, safe place to live as long as he needs it. And God reminded me through that, that even in the seemingly worst of scenarios, and I know that in the grand scheme of things, you've probably faced things much worse than this. But in, in the, even the seemingly worst of scenarios that we face, difficult times, things that cause us the most anxiety, he knows the fuller picture and hears and answers our prayers. So what about you? Which do you need to work on more? Being more cautious to ask God before making decisions or trusting God more when things begin to go south? or you're worried there's no way it can work out for good in the eyes of God. Which of these do you struggle with more? Or perhaps like me, might it even be both? Let me encourage you, no matter which of these you struggle with, to take those struggles to the Lord. Admit that you cannot always see what he sees, good or bad, and that you still need his help. Confess that even as Christians, we won't be able to fully see situations through God's eyes until our time on this earth is over and we're with him in eternity. It's okay. He already knows. But we should still confess our need for God because it's not he who tends to forget. It's us. We need the reminder. And we need to show humility before God in confessing our desire for his guidance and help. Now, let's return to our chapter as we consider the second section, rescue. Verses 13 through 16, rescue. 
13 through 16, chapter 14 of the book of Genesis. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobath, north of Damascus. And he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So at this point, someone who had escaped from the battle came and told Abram what happened to his nephew and his family that had been taken along with all, the, all they owned, that they were taken as, as spoils of victory by the army. Um, by this time, the, the war between the nine kings was over. Uh, Shador Laomer and his armies were headed back north, returning home. Um, and, and Abram is told that his nephew has been taken. Uh, now, in this section here, it's a short passage, but um, those of you who like movies might appreciate, there are a couple of details resembling Easter eggs in film, or perhaps more simply put, things that could easily go unnoticed in the text here. The first has to do with how Abram is identified. Again, easy to overlook this, but in this passage, it is the first time Abram, or anyone for that matter, is called a Hebrew. Abram is considered the father of the Hebrews, and the point of mentioning uh, that he is a Hebrew and what we would consider to be his ethnicity in this passage is likely to distinguish him from his allies, Mamre, Eschol, and Aner, who were the Amorites. Because these three men were allies of Abram, they would go to fight Shador Laomer along with him in order to save Lot. Another detail easy to overlook is, at least without a map, is that they pursued this army over 100, maybe 150 miles just to catch up with him. So again, Abram's down here, let's see, down here, um, I think, if from your vantage point. Again, Dead Sea is here, and he pursues the armies over 100 miles to catch up with them. Perhaps even more surprising than this, though, was the small size of his force, 318 men. Uh, now, it's possible that Abram's allies supplied men on top of this number. It's, it's likely that that's true, but, but two things should be taken from this. On, on the one hand, if Abram had a household, uh, and remember, Abraham's just one guy. He has a wife, no kids. But if he had 318 able-bodied men trained in warfare, clearly God had already blessed him greatly and increased his tribe to a, to a large one. On the flip side, the smallness of the size of this army is also incredible, considering, back to our very first point in the last section, they were pursuing a bloodthirsty army that had just demolished everything in their path, wiping out giant people and five armies. Um, and so Shador Laomer's army that, that gets defeated here was no small weak force, and yet Abram's tiny army was able to defeat them. Now in all of this, what we, what we see is Shador Laomer's army uh, is made, really made a couple of mistakes. First, they got greedy. They, they could have just plundered Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities they defeated, um, but they decided to take the people and the surrounding people along with them as spoils of war. And so along with Lot and his family, not only were, were Lot and his family taken, but also the people of Sodom and likely a lot of peoples from the other cities as well. Had they left them alone, a lot of commentators believe if they had just taken the possessions as was more common, then more than likely they would have, that would have been the end of it. 
but they got greedy, they took the people, and that was part of their downfall. The other mistake that they made was letting their guard down as they returned home from battle. They assumed that they'd left every town behind them ablaze and decimated as they walked home victorious. So they failed to stay vigilant against their foes. Again, as we read, on the way down with the battle, to the battle with the rebellious kings, they appeared to have crushed any chance of someone following them by destroying all the towns and people that they came through, even those with no apparent rebellion against their rule. But arrogantly thinking that they'd killed or took captive every person who could contest their power, they stopped watching behind them. And while they were resting at night, Abraham's small army split in two, surrounded them, and destroyed their forces, even chasing them another hundred miles or so back home. I think it's also good for us to note here Abram's loyalty to Lot, to his family, and that by taking all of his strong men into battle, knowing that, again, he has no children, no heir, Abram is continuing to show his trust in God's promise to make him a great nation in spite of the battle ahead. He's not worried because he believes that God will make good on his promise. And that leads us to our first point from this section. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to draw just two points of application from here. First, are we trusting in the promises of God like Abram? Are we trusting in the promises of God? Do we believe what God has promised to us? Here are a few things, a few promises that, that we can consider. Do we believe, as it says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, that he will give rest to the weary and heavy laden? Do we believe John 16, 33, that Jesus has overcome the world in spite of the troubles that we face here on this earth? Do we believe, Mark eleven twenty four, that what we ask for when we ask with a humble spirit and an unselfish heart, that it will be given to us by God? Do we believe, Matthew six thirty three, that we will have all we need if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness above all else? Do we believe, John 15, 3 and 4, that we are clean because we are trusting in his perfection and not our own? I know I, keep, I struggle to keep my eyes on these truths and so many more promises in Scripture. I mean, we could fill a whole morning just reading the promises of God. Um, and I struggle with trying to do things my own way or not taking my cares and worries to Jesus. But let us remember Abram's example, taking his own life, the lives of his people in his hands to save his relatives against really seemingly impossible odds, fighting a huge army, a terrifying army, yet trusting in God's promise that it would still be fulfilled. Secondly, I want to draw out the pursuit that occurs here, the pursuit. The pursuit of Abraham to go and get Lot is what's specifically in focus in this passage. Um, and this strikes me as a fitting parallel to how our God pursues and rescues us. Like Abram, God goes out of his way to draw us back to himself. We, we may not be taken captive by a savage army, but we may be enticed by the world, sin, and selfishness, enticed to follow other things besides God. We may let our hearts dwell on the riches or the esteem of this earth to our own detriment. 
but God does not leave his lost sheep on their own with the enemy. He comes and rescues us, as it says in Matthew 18, 10 through 14, like the lost sheep, the parable of the lost sheep, keeping us from total self-destruction and preserving us for the day of glory. As it says in verse 14 of Matthew 18, it is not the will of the Father that any of his chosen ones should perish. And thus he pursues us and draws us back to himself. What a marvelous truth. Now, let's bring the chapter to a close by, bringing, uh, by discussing rather Abram's reward. Abram's reward. Verses 17 through 24. After his return from the defeat of Shador Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that is Abram, at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the God Most High, of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him, that is Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. So Abram and Lot returned home, and his army has not only rescued Lot's family, but apparently the people and possessions of Sodom as well. And they're greeted uh, by a king that we have not yet met named Melchizedek, who is called a king of Salem and a priest of God Most High. Now, I think it's probably safe to say that uh, Melchizedek might not be on your list of potential boy names, necessarily, if you're having a child, but his name probably still has some familiarity. And that's because we are told later in the book of Psalms, chapter 110, that a priest after the order of Melchizedek will sit on the eternal throne. And then in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, as we heard Coleman read earlier, we are told that this priest is Jesus. We are, we're also are given a greater understanding into this interaction between Abram and Melchizedek um, in Hebrews 6.19 on through chapter 7. So if you'd like some additional reading, that's your homework for tonight. Um, I won't go too far into that, um, but just for the sake of time, I'll note that this Melchizedek, um, there's only one, this Melchizedek, though, was somehow a priest before there were priests. You'll note that if you kind of know the chronology of, of the book of Genesis and then Exodus, there is no Levitical priesthood yet. So he was a priest, and yet there are no priests yet. Um, and that God brought him to bless Abram in the name of the Lord. And his name, Melchizedek of Salem, his name means righteous king of peace. This, this righteous king of peace, he blesses Abram and gives credit to God for Abram's victory. And as a way to affirm the blessing that Melchizedek pronounced, Abram gives him a tenth of all he has. 
We could talk a little about that too. There is no tithe. This isn't the official tithe. Again, the system of tithing hasn't even been introduced yet. And so this is just a way of him affirming, Abram affirming what Melchizedek has said. It is not a required tithe or, or offering. That said, we are meant to then contrast how Melchizedek acts with the way the king of Sodom acts. Melchizedek, he just gave glory to God and proclaims a blessing upon Abraham for defeating their enemy and returning Lot and the other people to their lands. The king of Sodom, on the other hand, gives glory to no one and tries to give Abraham wealth and possessions, offering all they recovered from Shador Laomer's army to him. Now, in some ways, it seems like a benevolent gesture, and we don't really know what the king's motive was here. But in the end, Abram sees that if he accepts this gift from the king of Sodom, he will be in some ways indebted to him, and that the king may actually lord it over Abram, claiming that he, king of Sodom, is the reason that Abram is prosperous. But Abram knew where his true allegiances must lie. And that he did not, Abram did not, want to be beholden to anyone but God. Um, also, as I was preparing for this message, the ESV Bible commentary, a great Bible commentary if you're looking for one, um, it, it gave me a quick reminder as well that God said in Genesis 12:3, just a couple chapters ago, that God would bless those who bless Abram. So again, surely Abram, knowing that Sodom was a wicked city, filled with what, again, were called great and wicked sinners against the Lord, was not a place that God would be inclined to bless. For how could God bless those who were great sinners and flaunted their wickedness against him? Neither could Abram link himself with this wicked city or their leader. So as we reflect on this final section of chapter 14, I want to propose two takeaways for us to consider. First, is that we are being given a foreshadowing of the great priest to come. A foreshadowing of the great priest to come. Namely, Jesus. We're giving that foreshadowing in the person, the priest, Melchizedek. Melchizedek, like Jesus, was not from a priestly line. He could not have been, as the system of priests, like I said, had not yet been established. Likewise, Jesus was also not from the priestly line. He was from the tribe of Judah. We also know that Abram considered Melchizedek greater than himself because he accepted a blessing from him. And similarly, though Abram is one of the great fathers of our Judeo-Christian, <coughs> excuse me, Judeo-Christian faith, Jesus was also greater than he and gave great blessing to his people as well. Secondly, God may not bless those who live callously sinful lives, but he does save the wicked. And that's our second point. He does save the wicked. Though God cannot endear himself to wickedness, as was rampant in Sodom, he can change the hearts of the wicked and draw them to himself. All of us who are in Christ are examples of that. For God loved wicked sinners enough to show us the truth of who he is and of his magnificent mercy. He showed this by opening our eyes to see that we were living in sin and in need of a Savior. Abram, though great, couldn't save men's souls. Not even Moses or the great King David could deliver us, but only God's Son, Jesus, God in human flesh, 
can take on our sins and pay the penalty for them that we might be reunited with God. So, maybe you're here today and you've not accepted Christ as your Savior. Maybe like the the people of Sodom, you're living in sin and love of this world. Please know that this is the most important thing you could do today. Confess your sin. Surrender your life to God. And come under the Lordship of the Father of all fathers. Perhaps that is what God is calling you to do today, on this Father's Day, to give your life to the only Father who always keeps His promises, is gracious and merciful, works all things together for the good of those who love Him, and will never leave you or forsake you. Will you consider that today? Will you consider giving your life to the Father through His Son, Jesus, if you've not done so? And come talk to me, one of the elders, or even just someone around you after service, if you have questions about what that looks like or where to go from here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father of all fathers, Lord, we are so grateful to you for your word. Lord, we are grateful for you teaching us and telling us what happened in days past that we might better understand who you are and what you've done how you've delivered and examples of rescue and of righteous men, men who are, who are sinful and still weak and still make mistakes, Lord, but that seek to honor you and are faithful and, and righteous men of God. Lord, I ask that you would take the words that have been preached today and you take the lessons we've learned today and, and sow them in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to, to think about them. Think about, Lord, how the situations that, that we face may seem good, may seem bad, Lord, Um, But Lord, ultimately, you know what's good and bad for us, and you are working them for the good of those who love you. I pray, Lord, that you would take this message and take this chapter, Lord, and help it to give us uh, insight into who you are and what you've done, that we might take that into this week. In Jesus' name, amen.